There is hardly anything in the world more dramatic than when a person is on trial for their life. And there's no more dramatic moment in a trial than when the defendant is called to testify on the witness stand. If you're new with us this morning, we've been going verse by verse through Mark's gospel over the last several months. And today we come to Jesus' trial and his testimony on the witness stand. And there's never been a more shocking testimony given on a witness stand than the one Jesus gives in our text today. Let's go there together. Today we come to Mark chapter 14, and we're going to look at verses 53 through 65. Mark 14, 53 through 65. If you don't have your Bible with you, the verses will be on the screen behind me. Verse 53. They took Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests, the elders, and the teachers of the law came together. Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him. But their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days will build another not made with hands. Yet even then their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists and said, prophesy. And the guards took him and beat him. This is God's word. This text shows us three remarkable things, surprising things, life-changing things about Jesus. Three of them. Number one in your outline, Jesus is judge. Jesus is judge. The prosecution in our story is trying to make a particular charge stick to Jesus. And that charge is that Jesus had called for the destruction of the temple. You see, if Jesus had threatened to destroy the temple or called on others to destroy the temple, well, that would have been an act of insurrection and blasphemy. But of course, Jesus never actually said that. He only predicted that the temple would fall. He didn't call on others to come destroy it. And so, since he never actually said the things they're charging him with, when the witnesses came to testify, 
the text tells us that their testimonies didn't agree. They contradicted one another. Now, back in these days, if testimonies of witnesses didn't agree, the case was thrown out. Anytime witnesses came and they couldn't get their story straight, the case was dismissed. But if you haven't noticed, there's nothing legal about the trial in our passage today. There's nothing just about it. There's nothing fair about it. It's a kangaroo court. So instead of dismissing the case, the high priest, in his frustration, puts Jesus on the witness stand and asks him, Are you the Christos, the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? Now we must understand what the high priest is asking here. First century Jews were on high alert. They were expecting the Messiah to come at any moment. At any moment. But they were expecting a very human Messiah to come. One like their hero, David. They were expecting a Davidic king who would rise up and help the Jews rid themselves of their Roman oppressors. But the Messiah that was expected was very human, just like David was very human. Now, King David himself and other kings had been called Son of the Blessed One. Son of the Blessed One. But that did not imply that they were divine. No one thought David was divine. That name just denotes the blessing, the special blessing and favor and anointing of God. That's what that phrase means. It doesn't have anything to do with divinity. So when they called David son of the blessed one, they were not thinking that he was divine. They knew David was human. They just believed that he had a special anointing on his life. And so the high priest here is asking Jesus, point blank, are you the Messiah that we're expecting? And Jesus' response is incredible. It's incredible. He essentially says, no. No, I am not. I am, I am an infinitely greater Messiah than the one you're expecting. Jesus says, I am not just the son of the blessed one. I am the son of man. I am the son of man. What is Jesus saying? Well, the son of man was a figure in Daniel chapter 7 with mind-blowing power, glory, and authority. Mind-blowing. In Daniel 7, the son of man actually judges the entire world. So Jesus is saying to these men, you guys think you're the judge. But actually, I'm the judge. I'm the judge of all the earth. So take heed, fellas. Because no matter what your verdict is here of me today, I'll be back. I'll be back to give my own verdict of you. Obviously, this is an astonishing claim. 
It's an astonishing claim. And the high priest responds, eh, about like you'd expect. <laughs> what does he do? The text says he rips his garments apart, which in those days was a sign of the greatest possible outrage and horror. But not only that, the whole situation deteriorates. All the men around Jesus go nuts. They go crazy on Jesus. Did you see? They begin to spit on him and they beat him. This is an explosive response to Jesus' claim. Now, it cracks me up when Muslims and skeptics say that Jesus never himself claimed to be divine, that that was a later invention of the church. Uh, those folks haven't read Mark chapter 14 and seen the response of these men. I mean, why do you think they crucified Jesus in the first place? Why do you think they crucified him? Jesus wasn't a thug. He wasn't a thief. He wasn't a terrorist. He never hurt anyone. They had nothing to charge him with. No, you see, they crucified him because of his blasphemous claim to be the Son of Man. His blasphemous claim to divinity, to be the judge of all. That's number one. Jesus is judge. Number two in your outline. Jesus is judged. Jesus is judged. By Jesus specifically referring to Daniel 7, he's forcing us to see the paradox at play here. Do you see the paradox? It's amazing. Here we have the judge of all the earth. The judge of heaven and hell and earth. Himself being judged. It's quite the paradox. There's been an enormous reversal here in our story. He should be in the judgment seat and we should be in chains on the witness stand. He should be judge and we should be on trial. But in Mark 14, the roles are reversed. Corrupt sinners are judging the incorruptible king of glory. But did you know this is not the first time this has happened. It's not the first time it's happened. If we're going to understand what's going on in today's passage, we need to go to the other place in the Bible where God is put on trial. It's in Exodus chapter 17, where the Israelites are grumbling and complaining about Moses and about God because they don't have any water. They don't have any water. And so they bring their complaints to Moses and charge God himself with criminal negligence. They say, Moses, God is asleep at the wheel. What's he doing? He's certainly not doing his job. I mean, it was his idea in the first place to do this Exodus thing. 
And now he's brought us to the desert and left us out here to die. And so, God then comes to Moses and says, Have the people assemble at the rock and bring your rod. Now, what does that mean? It means there's going to be a trial. There's going to be a trial. The people are going to gather at the rock, and Moses is bringing his rod. And you see, Moses' rod was the symbol of justice. The symbol of justice. God used the rod of Moses to smite the Egyptians with plagues. And so Moses is thinking now, <laughs> all right, you grumbling Israelites are going to get it now. Judgment's coming. Divine wrath is coming down. And Moses can't wait. He's had enough of their yapping. And he can't wait for divine wrath to come down. But when they get to the rock, something unexpected happens. God says, I will stand upon the rock before the people. Now, that language is totally unprecedented in the Bible or in any other religion for that matter. God doesn't go on trial before us. We go on trial before God. But in Exodus 17, God goes on the witness stand. God says, I will stand before the people on the rock. And then he says to Moses, take your rod and strike the rock where I am standing. Strike the place where I stand. And Moses, in his perplexity, does so. The people assemble. God takes his place on the rock. And Moses strikes the rock with his rod. And what happens? Life-giving water begins gushing out from the rock. And the people are saved. They're saved. Now, I can only imagine what Moses is thinking. I can only imagine what he's thinking at all of this. He's got to be wondering what in the world is going on. What's going on? He's got to be thinking, God, how could you do this? They sinned against you. They blasphemed your name. They put you on trial. And you saved them? Why? It would be a long time before Moses got an answer to that question. It wouldn't come until Mark chapter 14, which brings us to point number three. 
our last point in your outline. Jesus is love. Jesus is love. There was an incredible play written in Germany right after World War II. The play was called The Sign of Jonah. In the play, right after the war was over, the German people began to realize that somebody has to pay for the atrocities of the Holocaust. Somebody's got to pay. Somebody's got to pay. But the question was, who? Who has to pay for the Holocaust? Who should be going on trial for this? And so, in the play, they, they first look to the citizens of Germany. And they say, it's your fault. You stood by and let this happen. And the citizens say, no, no, it wasn't us. Mm-mm, it was the soldiers. It's the soldiers' fault. They carried this out. And so they go to the soldiers and they say, it's your fault. And the soldiers say, no, 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 no. It wasn't us. It was our superiors. It was the military leaders. They told us. They gave us orders to do this. And so then they go to the leaders of the military and they say, well, it's your fault. And they say, no, no. It's not our fault. It's the politicians. They told us to do this. They gave the command. And so in the play, everybody tries to get out of going to trial by pointing to those above them. It causes all kind of consternation and confusion until the end of the play. You see, at the end of the play, suddenly everyone in Germany realizes how they can get out of going on trial. They all say, I know. Let's blame God for the Holocaust. Let's blame God for the Holocaust. It's His fault. He could have stopped it, but He didn't. The Holocaust, the horrors of the Holocaust, fall at God's feet. He let it happen. And so, they put God on trial. They find Him guilty, and they sentence Him. And here was the sentence they brought down. Quote, Let Him become a human being. Let him become a wanderer on the earth. Let him become homeless and hungry and thirsty. And let him die. And when he dies, let him be disgraced and ridiculed. End quote. You see, they did the atrocities of the Holocaust. Every one of them. The citizens the soldiers, the military leaders, and the politicians, every one of them were responsible. But they wanted God to pay for it. They wanted God to pay for their sins. And you and I are no different. We are no different. We are experts at self-justification. 
Self-justification. Our sins are always someone else's fault. We are a victim of our circumstances. We are just like Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, pointing the blame finger at everyone except ourselves. There's always a really, really good excuse. Now, when someone else sins, ooh, they're a sinner. But when we sin, ooh, wait a minute, I had good reasons. Don't judge me. I had good reasons. We are just like the Israelites in the desert, pointing our fingers upward and saying, God is asleep at the wheel. It's God's fault. He brought us here and He's left us to die. He's left us to die. And don't you see that's what all sin really is? At the root, at the root, all sin is judgment against God. That's what it is. It's not breaking the rules, folks. No. It's saying, I know better than you. You say do X, but I disagree. I want to do Y instead. So it's not just a breaking of the rules. It's open rebellion against the rule giver. It's saying, I know better than God. And we do this hundreds, if not thousands of times a day. I know that I do. Thousands of times a day. I know better than God. And so we tell him over and over and over again, we could run things better than you. And so we demand that God pay for our failures, God pay for our mistakes, and God pay for our sins. But as arrogant and blasphemous as this is, Dr. Edward Clowney says this, quote, God in his perfect love and grace has done what the arrogance of our cursing dares demand. We demanded that God come and be judged for our sins. And he did. End quote. And he did. And he did. You see, Moses didn't understand what was going on in the desert that day. But the Apostle Paul did. He knew. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the rock in the wilderness was Christ. The rock in the wilderness was Christ. And here in Mark 14, the rock is on trial again. And he's not coming to bring the rod of justice. He's coming to bear the rod of justice. God will not smite us for our sins, our arrogance, and our rebellion. He will smite his son in our place. Divine wrath is coming down. 
but it's not coming down on you. It's coming down on Jesus. It's coming down on the rock. On the cross, the rod of justice strikes the rock. And what happens? Life-giving water for all people begins gushing out from the cross. You see, Jesus is indeed the great judge of Daniel 7 who will deal with the evil of the world. But here's how he's going to do it. He will become our substitute. He will become our lamb. He's going to take the punishment from God that we deserve. He's going to take our witness stand. And the judge is going to proclaim him guilty. And he will take the punishment for our sins. He who deserves to be free will be chained. So that we who deserve to be chained will be free. Why? Because Jesus is love. That's who he is. And you say, no, wait a minute. All this love talk is great. That's neat and all. But how is this fair? Like, how is it fair? How could the innocent Jesus take the penalty for the guilty? That's not justice. Oh, yes, it is. Oh, yes, it is. There's a true story of a 16-year-old girl in Europe who was caught speeding on a particular highway where speeding carries heavy punishment. In fact, if you get caught speeding on that highway, they take you straight to the courtroom. And so this young girl stood terrified before the judge who swiftly pronounced her guilty and sentenced her to a $300 fine. She responded, trembling, that she didn't have $300. And of course then, if she didn't have it, she would go straight to the jail cell. In tears, she said, I'm sorry, I don't have it. And so... The judge got up from his seat, walked around the bench, pulled out his wallet, and gave the girl $300 to pay the fine. Now, why did the judge do that? Because the judge was the girl's father. He was the girl's father. And you see, he had every right to do that. Why? Because the girl belonged to him. She's his. She belongs to him. 
And so he has every right to pay her penalty for her. Likewise, Jesus Christ has every right to pay for our sins. Why? Because he's our father. And we belong to him. We are his. We are his. And so there was no injustice done to Jesus by God. None. If Jesus wants to pay for our sins, then he's well within his rights to do so. He is our Father, and he is a good, good Father. We owed a debt we could not pay. Not in 10 million years could we pay it. And so, because he is a good good father he paid it in our place and he's well within his rights to do so he is a loving gentle and forgiving father a father who gives his life to save his children so let's Stop focusing so much on our lives, our successes, and our failures. And let's just focus on how amazing Jesus is. Let's focus on how amazing Jesus is. Look, I know, I get it. I'm sinful too. I get it. And when you dwell on your sin, it can break you down. It sure does me. But let us hear today from the cross, our loving Father declare these words. My child, your sins are forgiven. They are all forgiven. The one who judges us is the one who died for us. <laughs> That's really good news. You know what? That's really good news. Our judge is our father who died for us. The hymn writer puts it like this. He says, God who planned and gave and suffered took our pain and death and sin. What a price to buy a sinner. Where can gratitude begin? Father, I bow before you. No response could be enough. Fill my life with all your fullness. Constant, holy, selfless love. Let's pray together.